We will be in Mark chapter 13, and so I invite you to get your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 13. As I've already pointed to earlier this morning, there is a place that you can follow along on the backside of our worship guide, and you can take some notes to keep track with the text this morning and our study as we work our way through Mark chapter 13. You're going to find when you turn there that... uh, Immediately, the thing that that jumps out about Mark 13 as you begin to glance through and read through these verses is that here are some some more warnings about things that are to come. Several times in the last few weeks, we have been looking at Jesus offering warnings to his disciples of things that were to come. Warnings that, that, that he would tear down the temple and that he would rebuild it again. That he would die and on the third day he would be raised to life. Warnings that they needed to take they needed to take heed. They needed to watch out. They needed to be on guard. And you're going to find all of those same themes woven into this text. But this text, I think, in a, maybe in a, in, in a fitting way, takes those different themes that we've been working with and brings all of it together beautifully for us. Mark chapter 13 this morning. And so we're going to study our way through this to see that Jesus is, is predicting, he's telling us that he will come again and that the call is for us to wait and to watch for that day to come. It is storm season officially now in Oklahoma, I suppose. I mean, we are, uh, we, we are moving into the month of May, just a few days left in the month of April. And even this week, I know that they've already predicted that there may be some severe storms this coming week, about the middle of the week on Tuesday or Wednesday. There have been some predictions. And so, you know, they, the weathermen, they're all telling us, be weather aware, make sure you have a plan in place, make sure you know where your people are, right? All of the events, all of the signs. And as Oklahomans, we're used to this. We're, we're, this is normal for us. This is what the spring looks like, right? Tornado season, you, you get ready for these things. Well, you know, in a, in a similar manner, what Jesus is doing here is he's preparing his disciples for things that are coming. And he's saying, look, the season has come. The, the time has come. And I want you to be aware. I want you to be prepared for these things so that when they happen, when they come, they won't take you by surprise. And so let's understand that as we dig into this text in Mark chapter 13 this morning. The first thing that we'll see is that we are waiting for Jesus' return. Waiting for Jesus' return. Well, what are we to do while we wait? How are we to wait. This text will answer some of those questions for us as we, as we first see that we're waiting for Jesus' return. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1, Mark chapter 13. It tells us, And he came out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then it says in verse 3, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. So let's pause there for a minute. So here's what's happening, right? Jesus has been in the temple He's been, he's been uh, 
he's been, if you remember last week, Mark chapter 12, he's been casting these, these um, warnings to the religious people that he was saying to them, basically, uh, you, need to, you need to be on guard, you need to watch out. And, and he even, in the text that we studied last week, he even praised the offering of the widow who gave the two small coins. And he said, this is a real, this is a real gift. This is, this is a woman who truly gets it. Jesus didn't say gets it. Of course, I'm uh, making that a little more modern, I guess, updating his vocabulary some. But that's what he's saying. Here's a woman who gets it. Here's a woman who understands what the real heart of worship and sacrifice is about. Because everybody else are trying to do these religious activities to impress God and impress others. But here is a woman who has given sacrificially all that she has as her offering to God. And now he leaves the temple. And as he leaves the temple, he begins to say to his disciples, all of this that you see is going is to is going to fall down, right? Now, I mean, the, every, every stone of, this, of these beautiful buildings will be turned over. There, there's a picture that I want to show you that gives us roughly the perspective that, that Jesus and his disciples would have if they were looking at the temple from the top of Mount of Olives, okay? And so if you were to exit out of the temple and go across the Kidron Valley, you would climb the Mount of Olives, which sits several hundred feet taller than Zion, which was where the temple was located. And then looking down into the temple, you might see this. Jeremy, can we show the, the picture? If you scan down, uh, there's a, an image there that we can show. And so this is roughly the perspective that Jesus and the disciples would have had from atop the Mount of Olives, looking down at the temple. Look at this. You see, even, uh, even just seeing this, you think, wow, how impressive. I mean, how incredible is this, that you're looking onto the temple that rises above the mountaintop there. You can see how much larger it is than the rest of everything around it. And we know that, in fact, today, all of this is gone. In fact, in the year AD 70, the Romans came in and to put down a rebellion that had risen up amongst a group of Israelites that were known as zealots, which is, of course, where we get the idea of being very zealous, that these zealots tried to overthrow the ruling Roman government. And the Romans came in and dealt severely with them. And in fact, they, they leveled the temple. They leveled all of the temple court. And of all of this that you see, this entire magnificent structure that was known as Herod's temple, the only thing remaining today on the far western side which would be from our perspective as we're looking at this now, the back side, okay? So on the back side, there is a section of the lower western wall that remains today. It's what you've heard referred to before as the wailing wall because even to this day, uh, Jews will, will make a pilgrimage there and they will stand at the western wall, the wailing wall, and they will pray. And so of all of this magnificent structure, just as Jesus predicted, all of it came tumbling down. But is that all that Jesus was talking about? Was he, was he just predicting what would happen in 70 AD or was he talking about something more? Was he using a prophecy of those events that might occur then as a symbol of something even greater that might happen at a later date? Well, let's understand that as we, as we go further into this text. So Jesus answers the questions of his disciples to pick back up with our text in verse 5. And he began to say to them, 
See that no one leads you astray. (coughs) Excuse me. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we're to wait, we, we see. We're to wait for these things to happen. And as we wait, let's understand that Jesus is telling us here about signs and things that will take place. Events that will be, maybe in many ways for us, a They will be symbols or signs or signifiers that this is the hour. This is the moment. And so it's the circumstance of Jesus' return, the way that I want us to see it today. The circumstance of his return. He tells us, look at some of the signs themselves that he points to, right? He says that there will be things like physical acts, right? Like earthquakes, We will see things of wars and rumors of wars. And and all of these are signs that the end is coming but is not yet. But more than that, he goes on to tell us about what believers will face. Some of the persecution, some of the tribulation that believers will face in the midst of all of this, right? He says, be on guard. And, And then he says, you'll be beaten. You'll stand before governors and kings to bear witness to them. But then, verse 10, he gives us this important What I I believe to be an interpretive key that we need to understand. He says the gospel must be preached to all the nations. Be proclaimed. That same word proclaimed could be translated preached. The gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. So what's the point of what Jesus is saying here? Well, we, we need to understand this. That the temptation is for us to try to read the signs of the times. And look at the events that are unfolding. And try to pinpoint the exact date of Jesus' return, right? I mean, that's the temptation. And there are many today that have built whole ministries on this, right? There are, there are, are, are ministries that are out there. You can find them easily, right? The guys have written books and they preach sermons and, they, and, and, they, and they've built an entire ministry about trying to pinpoint the exact timing of Jesus' return. Now, I want to say this. There's nothing wrong with studying and digging into the signs. In fact, I think that's really actually something that we ought to do, something that's important for us to understand. Jesus even gave a vision to John in the book of Revelation. I mean, an entire book of the New Testament is devoted to these signs of the end times and these visions that John had and these things that are to come. So it's not, it's not that we should be just dismissive. But the temptation is to focus so much on the events and the coming of the end that we miss the real point. 
And that is that as we begin to see the times are, 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 are winding down, as we begin to see that the day is drawing near, it ought to be a reminder to us, an encouragement to us, that we have a mission to do and we have to be busy about kingdom work because the time is brief. The, the, the hours themselves are, are numbered, the days even, numbered until Jesus returns. And that's the point. That's the point for us. We could drive ourselves mad trying to figure out exactly when it will happen. And in fact, even then we won't get it right. I can pretty much guarantee that anyone who says, I've figured it out. Jesus is coming again on such and such a day. I mean, I'd be willing to say, okay, well, it's not going to happen then, right? Because Jesus even tells us, we'll see in a moment. No one knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven know, right? But it's not for us to know. What, uh, what is for us to understand is that these signs, these things are a reminder to us that the clock is ticking. And that in the meantime, we have a job to do as the people of God. That we are called to make disciples. We are called to, it says in verse 10, preach the gospel to all the nations. So what's our role in all of this? Is to understand that in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again, we need to be active. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to be at work sharing Jesus with people. I also think it's important if you were to study this particular section of Mark 13, I, I think probably the key, the key verb phrase that you're going to find is what's translated in, in verse 9 as be on guard. Be on guard. Now, that's an important phrase that we're actually going to see several different times again in this text. Several times in Mark 13, Jesus tells us to be on guard. So make note of that as we read through the rest of this. Why is it important that we would be on guard? It means that if I were, if I were to try to explain this to you, again, using uh, maybe today's vocabulary, I would, say, I would say it maybe like this. I would say that we need to, we need to just, uh, we need to be aware. We need to be keyed in. We need to have our, we need to have our eyes open. We need to be focused. Right? All of these are same things that communicate the same basic idea. Be on guard. It doesn't necessarily mean be defensive. What it means is be aware. Watch for these things because when they, when these things happen, you know that the end is drawing near. And that is a reminder to you that you've got a job to do. You have a mission to do. So we see the circumstance of Jesus' return. Wars, rumors of wars, these, these supernatural uh, events like earthquakes, famines. We see that believers will be beaten in synagogues and delivered over to governors and other ruling authorities. There will be persecution. There will be these things. All of these things are signs, Jesus says, of the circumstance that will be occurring prior to the return of Jesus. But not only do we see his circum the circumstance of his return, we see the consequence of Jesus' return as well. We keep reading in verse 14, and we see the consequence of his return. Read with me. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then he says, parenthetically, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Now let's, let's briefly, I, I want to deal with this for, for just a moment. What's happening and, and what he means here. It could literally, this could be an entire series of sermons digging into and doing some of the background and the, and the, and the history work. And, and, and that may be something for another, another day and another time. I want to just touch briefly on this topic now because, again, I want to move into what we might say is the, the true consequence of these things, uh, how we are to respond in light of these things. But he refers to something here that he calls the abomination of desolation. If you were to read in the book of Daniel, particularly in the Old Testament, this phrase, this idea is used several different times in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 12 refer to this prophecy of something that was referred to as that, that, that we would know now as the abomination of desolation. And there are many there are many ideas as to what that means. Some would say that the abomination of desolation was an event that, re, that occurred prior to the time of Jesus when, when in the, the wake of the Greek conquest of Palestine when uh, in, in those days after the Greeks had conquered Palestine and then Alexander died and his kingdom was divided amongst his generals. There was a general that ruled over Palestine that was known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, who was commonly referred to by the people of, of Palestine area as Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the crazy one. Well, Antiochus, Antiochus came into the temple and he tore down the, 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 the different uh, elements of the temple and erected on the altar there in the temple this statue and sacrificed a pig, a statue of himself, and sacrificed a pig there. He, he essentially, he violated the altar and it was referred to, and we see this in the book of 1 Maccabees, as the, the abomination of desolation. That he essentially had performed an act so vile, so heinous there on the altar that they could no longer use the altar. It was never again usable. They had to replace it with an entirely different altar. And some would say, well, that's what is being referred to here by the abomination of desolation. I don't think that that... Is, is what Mark has in mind here, though, because he's speaking about future events. And those events happened in 168 B.C. So those events would have happened roughly 200 years, not quite, but roughly 200 years prior to the time that Jesus would have been speaking these words. And so he's not pointing backward. He's pointing forward to a future event. There are others who would say, well, it was when the Romans came in in AD 70. And again, they, they leveled the temple that we saw that picture of a moment ago. And they, and they again, they desecrated the, the altar to the temple there by doing these profane acts and offering sacrifices to these idolatrous gods, these images that they would carry on these banners or standards of the Caesar. And they would have come into the temple and they would have raised the standard and they would have, they would have performed sacrifices there to the standard, to, the, to this image, this idol of the Caesar. And there are many who would say that that is what Mark is pointing to. And I do think that there is an element of what Mark is referring to here in the words of Jesus that is, is pointing to that. But even in that, I think it's a picture of something greater that is to come, something more ultimate. And so we need to understand there's maybe in some ways sort of a dual 
meaning here, a dual interpretation. Yes, he is pointing to these events where the temple would fall. But here's the real point, is that the center of worship would shift from the temple and, and it would shift to something else. What is that something else? We'll read more about that in just a minute. The center of worship would shift. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said would happen? He says, this temple and all of it, everything that you see will be torn down. Not a stone will be left unturned. What Jesus is predicting to his disciples is he's saying, guys, listen, you look at this temple and you say, how great, how, how incredible is this? What a marvel of modern construction. And it was. But Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, none of this is going to last. All of this is going to go someday. None of this has any lasting value. And instead, I want you to be focused on and busy about things that will stand the true test of time. That's the point, right? And we can get so wrapped up in trying to interpret which figure is going to be the, the who is going to be this, this figure that comes and, and does the abomination of desolation. Who's going to be, is this truly the Antichrist? Is this Satan? Uh, who is this? And we can try to interpret all of these things. And, and we miss the, the main thrust of Jesus' message, which is, you may look at the temple and say, this is beautiful. You look at all these things that man has made. But Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, this is all fading glory. None of it will last. Instead, invest your lives in things that matter, things that will remain. That's the heart of what Jesus is, is preaching. Let's keep reading. We left off verse 15. No, we read further than that. We left off verse 17. We're still looking at the consequence of Jesus' return. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those days are nursing infants... Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord did not cut short the days, no human being will be sa- would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. There, exactly what I've said, right? Anybody that says, here's the day, you can pretty much guarantee it's not going to happen then, Right? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. There it is again, that phrase. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So what Jesus is saying here is, look, there are going to be signs. There are going to be these events that are happening. There's a consequence to these events. There's a consequence to these things once they're set in motion. The temple will fall. The abomination of desolation will will occur. There will be many false Christs who will try to lead astray the elect. There will be those who rise up preaching a false message, a false gospel, who intend to lead God's people astray. And Jesus is saying, in light of all that, be on guard. I'm telling you these things beforehand. Be on guard. Watch out. I think it's significant. In fact, it's, again, I would say, It's the key to understanding this text, the key to properly interpreting this text, that we pay attention to these these verb phrases like be on guard. Because what Jesus is telling us is in light of all these things that are unfolding and taking place, I want you to keep your focus centered on your mission. Keep your focus centered on kingdom work. So we're to wait for Jesus to return Sometimes it feels like 
Hurry up and wait, doesn't it? Right? We've all felt that before. You know the, you know the feeling. Hurry up and wait. Get ready. There are things that are coming. I'm anticipating these things. And, and I try to have everything ready. And then I just wait. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, wait. The hour is coming. There will be signs. There will be circumstances that point to my return. There will be consequences of my return. There will be, there's a consequence to these things. False Christ, those who are trying to lead people astray. But wait for the hour. But not only are we to wait, we're to watch. We're to watch. Now, we see this now as he, he says uh, that they are to be on guard. He even tells them to stay awake. We'll see that. Watch out. Stay awake. We'll, we'll see that in a moment. So let's read in verse 24. We're watching for Jesus' return. Waiting for his return. Watching for his return. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now all of these things that he's spoken of, verses 24 through 26, these are pointing to the hour of his return. Okay, And so he's pointing to these things that will happen in those days after the tribulation. When Jesus returns, we might say. We're going to see these events. Verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates... Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He's pointing to the return of Christ. And he's saying, learn the lesson from the fig tree. What is the lesson of the fig tree? When the, when the fig tree begins to put on its blooms, it's a sign that summer is near. Because the fig tree doesn't bloom in the winter, it blooms in the late spring. It, it blooms as summer is here. Jesus is saying, learn that lesson, right? There, there are these signs around us, and we should learn the lesson that there will be things pointing to my return. And when that happens, you will see the signs. You will see these things taking place. Now, what does he mean when he says, this generation will not pass until all these things have taken place? If we interpret this as saying that the abomination of desolation is the events of A.D. 70, when the Romans leveled the temple, we could say, well, okay, there, there's the fulfillment of these events. That this generation would not have passed, at least not as a whole, right? Maybe some, but as a whole, this generation would not have passed at the hour that the temple fell and the Romans came in and they sieged and leveled the city of Jerusalem some roughly 40 years, not quite 40 years after Jesus would have been predicting these things. But if we're to interpret this in light of its, what I might say, its even fuller meaning or, or its, uh, its more symbolic meaning, it's referring to the coming of the end of the age, truly the coming of the second Christ, or the second coming of Christ, I mean to say, then we would understand that this is not talking about the fact that the people alive that heard these words would live forever, but instead... What, what he's saying, Jesus is saying, is that my people will endure until the end. My people, believers. I think that's what he means there when we see this symbolically in light of this generation. My people will endure to the end. And importantly, importantly, he says, 
Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my word, excuse me, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So he's saying, my people will endure to the end and my promise will endure to the end as well. So that I might remain faithful to my people. So this is what I would call the certainty of Jesus' return. We're watching for his return. We see the certainty of his return. When you see these things taking place, verse 29, you will know that the end is near. At the very gate, it's the certainty of Jesus' return. And what he's saying is that until I come again, my people will endure, my promises will endure, and so I want you to be busy about my kingdom work. So we're watching for his return. We see the certainty of his return. And then finally, this, the challenge of Jesus' return. The challenge of his return. Keep reading in verse, the very next verse, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And here's our phrase again. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going out on a journey, and when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now that's important. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But I, I want you to hang on to that idea. A man going on a journey, leaving his servants in charge. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, unless he comes suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, and I say to all, stay awake. So Jesus concludes this passage, this teaching, by giving us this instruction. And, and, and essentially by wrapping it up, he says, guys, this is really what I mean. This is what it's all about. It's like a man who goes on a journey and he leaves his servants in charge. You see that the man who went on the journey, that's Jesus. And the servants who are left in charge, that's us. And what What he's saying is that the servants need to be busy about the master's work so that when the master returns, they will be found ready. Be on guard, stay awake. And that's the point for us. The master has left for a time, but he's promised us that he's coming again. And when he returns, we want to be busy about his work. When he returns, we don't want to be caught asleep. We want to be awake, which means we don't want to be wasting the time, wasting what's been entrusted to us. We want to be found faithful, obedient, diligent, doing the master's work. And that's the point. Well, what is the master's work? It's kingdom work, isn't it? Proclaiming the gospel to the nations, living as salt in this generation, being light in the midst of the darkness. It's making disciples. It's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. It's reaching people, or as Jesus even says in the Great Commission, it's go into all the world and make disciples and teaching them what I've taught you. That we're to baptize them. Jesus even promises, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In the midst of all of this, he'll be with us, guiding us, leading us, directing us through the work of his Holy Spirit. And so the point is is this, to, to summarize, to bring it all together here. The point of what Jesus is teaching us is this. Someday he's coming again. And until he comes, we're to wait for his return and we're to watch for his return. And as we wait and as we watch, we ought not to be, we ought not to be uh, lazy. 
we ought not to be asleep, to borrow the, the example the way that Jesus words it. In other words, we ought to be busy doing his kingdom work. We ought to be diligent about the mission that he's given us, knowing that Jesus is coming again. So until he returns, our task is to go and to make disciples, is to proclaim the gospel message, to live it out in a way that others would see and that they would, that they would want what we have, that others would, would be attracted to the hope of Christ by what they see in our lives. It's not for us to get wrapped up in the when and the where and the how. Not that those things aren't interesting and not that there's, I I don't mean to say that any study of the end times is fruitless. I I think there's great fruit to understanding and, and, and interpreting what the Bible says. But the point of that is always to lead us to something greater. And that's something that's greater, that's more ultimate is that we would understand that the days are numbered and that until Jesus returns, we're to be busy about his kingdom work. So there are a number of things in this that different scholars defer on, right? When some of these events might take place, what was the fulfillment? Was it something in the past? Is it something in the, in the future? Is it, did it happen in AD 70? Is it coming at the end of the age? How do we interpret all of that? And, and all of that is important, okay? I, I don't mean to just brush all of that aside and, and say, let's not worry about it. it it's important. And in another day, in another study, we'll maybe dig in deeper to some of those things. But we would miss the point today if we focused too much on the signs themselves. Because the point of what Jesus is teaching is that the signs to us need to be an encouragement that we have a job to do. And that job is that we would faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus so that people will hear. So regardless of whether you fall, where you fall on some of these interpretive issues, the net result is the same, isn't it? Nobody knows when Jesus is coming again, but we ought to live as though it could be today. And the question is, are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Have you trusted him as Lord and Savior? Have you surrendered your life to him? Do you have that confident assurance that you, that you know that you have given your life to Jesus, that you have trusted in him for your faith and your salvation? And if you've trusted him, are you busy about his kingdom work? Are you actively working to build his kingdom through making disciples, through sharing the gospel, proclaiming it, That's our task as his people. We need to understand that Jesus could come again at any day. I think when we look at the events of our day, when we begin to look at things that are happening in our world today, we can point to signs of all these things, right? We could go back and we can look at any number of these things and we could say, yeah, it could be today. It could. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. The point isn't that we would get too wrapped up in exactly when it will be. It would just be that we live with the kind of confident assurance that whenever Jesus comes, I'm ready and I'm doing everything I can to make sure that those around me are ready as well. That's our task as his people. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, a time of response. And maybe today through through this message, God has been stirring in your heart. And maybe the thing that just keeps coming up in your mind, something that's stirring in your spirit says... I'm not sure that I'm ready. I mean, if it were today, if Jesus were to return today, I'm not sure that I'm ready. Did you know that 
you don't have to go through life plagued by fear and doubt. The, the point of what Jesus is preaching here is not to cause us to live in fear. It's to cause us to live in confident assurance. And how do we have that assurance? By knowing that we've trusted in him. Today, if there's something inside of you that says, I'm not sure I'm ready, then my prayer is that during our invitation, you would come and speak with one of our staff who will be, be here at the front. Let us lead you through a prayer of faith that you would surrender your life to Jesus so that you can know that you're ready. You can know that you're ready for his return. Maybe, maybe you hear all of this and, and, and you think, you know, I know I've trusted in Jesus, but if I were to be honest, I've kind of fallen down on the job. Like the way Jesus describes it is stay awake. If I were to be honest, I've kind of fallen asleep at work because I'm not doing my part. I'm not, I'm not proclaiming his kingdom. I'm not making disciples. I'm not doing his kingdom work. Then would you let today be a challenge to you that you would, that you would wake up, that you would heed the warning that Jesus offered here, that you might be busy about building his kingdom so that whenever he returns, you would be ready. Would you pray with me? God, as we as we respond now to your word, I, 